0: Today is, uh, we're going to talk about Jesus. My name is Brian, one of the pastors here, and I'm going to be uh, teaching about Jesus today. I get the great joy to tell you guys a little bit about him and what he's done for us on the cross and what Easter's all about. What I want to do, kind of, as we begin to take a look at this, is as we look at the cross, as we look at Jesus, the thing I really want for us to understand is really, this is the big deal about Christianity. This is the big deal. Everything in Christianity revolves around the concept, the idea, the teaching, the doctrine that Jesus rose again from the dead. So that's what we're going to look at today. So I'm going to pray ask God's blessing upon this morning. I'd love for you guys to pray along with me, and then we'll get to work. We'll jump in. We've got a few things to look at. And hopefully we'll have a great celebration today. Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you that your word has foretold all of this. It was all part of your story that was being unfolded from the beginning of time. And we got a chance to be able to see it, to witness it. And even now we get a chance to open the Bible and to learn about it. So, Father, we thank you that we get to celebrate. So we give you this morning. We pray that you would have your way. We just pray that you would open our eyes, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear. We pray that you would be glorified and that we would be satisfied within you today. We ask all these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What I want to do is I want to launch from the little passage. Jesus, in his ministry, uh, spent a lot of time with uh, 12 disciples on several occasions. He would take them sort of on field trips. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus took them on a field trip to a city called Caesarea Philippi, and as, as he was on his way there, he has this dialogue with his disciples. He asks them the question, who do people say that I am? Then he turns the question very personally to the disciples. He asks them, who do you guys say that I am? This is the response. This was sort of the dialogue that had transpired between Jesus and his disciples. It says this in Mark chapter 8, verse 29. And then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And then Peter answered, You are the Christ. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and by the chief priests and the scribes, and that he must be killed. And then after three days, he was to rise again. So the message really that Jesus communicates to his disciples here is essentially four things are going to happen to him. One, he's going to suffer, he's going to be rejected. He's going to die, which the word in the Greek is sort of uh, a very physically uh, harsh way of death. But then the third day, he's going to rise again. Uh, two days ago, was Good Friday. Uh, we celebrated. That's one of the best Good Fridays we've ever had here as a church. Uh, we had two services at noon, one at 630. They were the best. It was awesome. If you were there, you got, got a chance to be part of it. It was just amazing. I was so stoked. We had a great time to commemorate, to consider, to meditate upon the cross, upon what Jesus did for us, for our sin. But that's what Jesus communicates to his disciples. He says, I'm going to suffer at the hands of other people, angry men. I'm going to be rejected by the religious leadership. I will die. I will die a violent death, but then the third day, I will rise again. And throughout Jesus' history or his ministry with his disciples, he regularly communicated to his disciples, these two concepts always couple together, his suffering and death and his resurrection and glory all the time. That was the way Jesus always communicated. And this is no different. One of the things that we need to understand with regard to this is that even as it was central to the teachings of Jesus, that the cross and the resurrection of Christ really is the center or the cornerstone of all of Christian belief. Now, yes, Jesus was a great miracle worker. He did a lot of miracles, did a lot of great things. Not signs, not wonders were done at the hands of Jesus. And at the same time, we don't base Christian faith, Christian belief, upon the miracles of Jesus. They were great, they were wonderful, and yet we don't base the sum total of our Christian belief upon that. Jesus was a phenomenal teacher. I think, yes, most people, what do you think about Jesus? Most people would admit that Jesus was a great teacher. Yet in reality, even though Jesus was a great teacher, we actually don't even base the bulk of Christian belief upon the teachings of Jesus. Though they were essential, and though they are central to our understanding and living out the faith, we don't base it upon that alone. But that's one of the things that makes Christianity unique amongst amongst other types of world religions. And cults. is that Jesus... We don't base it upon merely his teachings. Buddha is based not upon the life or the person of the Buddha, but it's based upon the teachings of Buddha. Same thing with Islam, based upon the teachings of Muhammad. And the reality is, when it comes to Christianity, it's not just simply based upon the teachings of Jesus. The other thing we see about Jesus was not only was he a, a, a good teacher, not only was he a miracle worker, but we also see with regard to Jesus that he was... Very moralistic. He was really just a good human being. I mean, he was really the type of guy that a lot of us aspire to be. Everybody admits Jesus was just a great guy. I mean, he was always concerned about other people. He was always helping the underdogs. He was always seeking out the marginalized, the people who were oppressed, the people that were sort of uh, disassociated with society, the outcasts people that were sick, the people that were maimed, the people that the rest of culture and society would just simply write off, Jesus was the guy that would always go after them. Jesus really, if he lived in our day, would be the the quintessential Facebook member who's always inviting other people to causes. (laughs) That's Jesus. He would always be inviting people to causes. Jesus was very cause, central Centered, He was always concerned about helping other people. But believe it or not, we really don't even base Christianity upon the moralistic behavior or the humanity of Jesus alone. Now, I don't want to minimize the teachings or the miracles or the humanity of Christ and the goodness of Jesus as a man himself, but those are not the the central issue by which Christian belief is based upon. Christianity is based upon an event that happened, that Jesus actually lived, he actually suffered, he actually died, he actually rose again. That's what we celebrate today. That's what we get the joy to preach today. That's what I get the joy of communicating to you about today. That's the joy that we get to celebrate today, is that Jesus actually rose again from the dead. So what I want to look at is I want to just try to understand in Jesus' life how all of this happened. Jesus, obviously, as the story goes, was born in a very small, sort of uh, marginalized city. It was not very big in, by any stretch of the imagination. It was sort of like kind of a little redneck town. It was a place where most people never ventured. It was a place that was off the shot in path. It was a place that most people stayed away from. That's where Jesus was born. He was raised up in a family that was sort of a blue-collar type of a family. His dad swung a hammer for a living. He was a carpenter. Jesus, like tradition, probably would have followed in the footsteps of his father. He no doubt would have learned the family trade. So Jesus would have himself been trained as a carpenter. And he would have done this until around age 30. Where on age 30, Jesus begins to start a ministry. Jesus would have left home, but as he ventured out, he would have been kind of like an itinerant type of a preacher. He would have traveled from village to village, from town to town, from city to city, communicating to other people about God. One of the things that Jesus did is he actually gathered together a group of men, 12 to be exact. These 12 men followed Jesus from town to town, from village to village, from place to place, and they watched Jesus kill people. They listened to the message that Jesus preached. And they saw with their own eyes the life of God being lived out in this man. And about halfway through Jesus' ministry, which is around the time when Jesus ventured with his road trip to Caesarea Philippi, about halfway through, so about a year and a half into his ministry, Jesus takes his disciples to this place called Caesarea Philippi and asks them who to the mention I am. It is around that time that Jesus begins to tell them that he's going to die. to But all of this is based upon the heels of this confession that he's the Christ, that he himself is the one that's going to fulfill the promises of God. He will fulfill all that God's desire was to set out to save mankind. He will be a king. He will be a deliverer. He will deliver people from oppression, from sin, from themselves, from the offense of God. He will be like a Passover lamb. All of these things, to some degree, more or less, were sort of tucked into this concept or idea of the Messiah. That's who Jesus was. That's how they believed him to be. But then Jesus began to communicate to them that he would die. They had a hard time with this. They didn't understand this. This did not fit their framework of how God would reveal himself through the Messiah. So Jesus does what good gods do, and he breaks the framework, right? Sometimes we have these ideas about God that are incorrect. So sometimes God, because He loves us, He doesn't want us to have an incorrect view of who God is. He will shatter those things. Right? That's how God works sometimes. God will oftentimes allow circumstances in our lives. He will allow sometimes suffering or difficulties or things which completely rock our lives off of its foundation. And one of the first questions we ask is, Where's God in all of this? And one of the reasons why we ask that question is because, really, I think it's God's way to try to set about in our minds a proper perspective of who He is. Because He knows that we've had a faulty perspective of who He is. If we have a wrong idea about who God is, and we'll worship God incorrectly, which is false. And we won't have love. And it's God's ultimate desire to bring us love. That's God's. God's joy would be that we would find life in Him. So Jesus breaks the mold, breaks their concept about who they assumed He was, the Messiah was, and He says, I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to die on the cross. But I will rise again the third day. And all the way to the point Jesus preaches about to about the third year, He's arrested by based on, dropped up uh, trumped up charges that are just false. He ends up going through the whole system, ends up being found guilty. They crucify him, they murder him, and on Friday they put him in the tomb. And for the next few days, all of those that follow Jesus are in this funk. Right? They're in this funk. Jesus is gone. We had hoped that he was going to be the Messiah. We thought that he was God come in the flesh. To redeem us, we thought he was going to be like the prophet Moses, to deliver us. We thought he was going to be like the king in David's line to rule over us. That's who we thought he was going to be. But he's dead. He's dead. And for these next few days, that was the reality they lived. Until so about the third day, we're told that early in the morning, two women go to the tomb you got to understand, in first century culture, a woman's testimony is really worthless. It's worthless. So sometimes people are like, the Bible can't be we believed. Well, if you're going to try to make false authority trying to sell the resurrection, you would definitely, definitely not try to sell the resurrection first century based upon the testimony of a female. This is the way it works. You just wouldn't do that. Why would they put the fact that women were the first ones to bear testimony? Because it's true. They're not trying to make it up. They're just trying to be consistent with the facts. So these two women go to the tomb, and they notice that the stone's been rolled away. They begin to walk around. They're concerned, frustrated. They're filled with emotion because they feel as if somebody's taken the body, one of the women. Uh, Go to what she supposes to be the gardener, has dialogue with them, asks, Why have you taken the body of my Lord away? And she's having dialogue with actually Jesus. For some reason she doesn't know it's Jesus, probably either because it's early in the morning or because she's been doing what women who are sad do for the past few days, which is cry. She's been crying nonstop for the past few days. She can't see properly. She can't see that it's Jesus for Lord. And what happens is Jesus ends up revealing to her, by the her by name, saying, Mary, no, it's me. I'm risen from the dead. She immediately runs, leaves the location, goes all the way back to the disciples, wakes them up, basically says, listen, Jesus is alive. He's risen again from the dead. I saw him. And I can imagine, like, probably typical guys they just discounted her testimony. She's emotional. Right? She's emotional you know, I mean who knows how they did it, but they just probably for the most part dismissed it. But Peter and John, for whatever reason, this piqued their curiosity. They run from the location where they were back to the tomb to try to validate or verify to see whether or not this is true. Upon arriving back, they begin to realize this has to be true. They begin to realize what has taken place is none, nothing short of a miracle. That Jesus, later on that day, reveals himself to the rest of the apostles, the rest of the disciples. And then we're also told in Paul's account, in the book of 1 Corinthians 15, that upwards of 500 people in a village saw Jesus. And I love this, because when Paul writes this, he's basically saying, look, if anybody has questions, there's a few people still alive, that saw him. go ask them. You don't believe me? We talk to them. mean, if these guys were making this up as a story, just to try to keep a new religion, or create a new religion called Christianity, it just doesn't make any sense. On top of that, every single one of the apostles were murdered for their faith, with the exception probably John, but even still there's some speculation that perhaps he was murdered. I mean, why would people make this up if it was not simply true? The reality is the only way that you can really describe it or explain it is that Jesus did rise again from the dead, they did see the risen Savior, they did have lunch with them, they hung out with them, they talked with them, they watched him rise again. Back or arise um, in terms of the ascension up to God. They saw the whole thing. But the resurrection changed them, it infected them, it transformed them, it took them from being cowards to becoming very brave and bold to the point of even enduring imprisonment and ultimately, as I mentioned already, death. That's what happens when people come to grips with the reality that Jesus. Is not dead. But that Jesus actually did live, he did suffer, he was rejected, he did die, and he did, past tense, rise again. That's what we celebrate. That's the gospel. That's the message that takes place, that happens, that we celebrate here today. What I want to do is I want to finish up with a few thoughts and ask the question what does that mean for us? What does it mean to have Jesus rise again from the dead? And one of the things you gotta understand, the fact of the resurrection was an event that it actually happened. It affected people's lives. They saw it, they talked with Jesus, hung out with Jesus, ate dinner with Jesus, they interacted with Jesus post-death, right? Resurrection. They hung out with them. They knew that he was alive. But the question that you've got to ask is, what does it mean? What does it mean for us? How does it affect us? Well, that was the question that the early disciples asked. And when you begin to sort of ask the question, well, what does that mean? What you're really asking is sort of a doctrinal issue. How does the concept of the resurrection of Christ change me? You're you're actually what you're doing is you're defining a doctrine. Sometimes people freak out about doctrine, like you're going to talk about doctrine. That's boring, right? Now, actually, doctrine is life. It should be a lot. Because really, when you talk about doctrine, what you're talking about is the application of the reality. Does it make sense? So, Jesus rose from the dead. The next question, what does that mean for me? How does that affect you? Well, the New Testament is filled with all sorts of applications as to what the resurrection of Christ means. There's a lot of them. I don't have time to go through all of them. I've just selected about three of them. We're going to look at about three of them. Just enough to kind of give us something to think about, to chew on, to consider, to really stoke the fires of our worship, to give us enough information to just consider how great our God is to actually raise Jesus from the grave. So the first one is this. The first one is this. The fact that Jesus rose again from the dead, Is really validating what it it gives truth and essence to the fact that the Scriptures can be trusted. That the Scriptures are true. I'll give you an example of this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 5, here's what Paul the Apostle says. He says, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This is a very important phrase to find throughout the New Testament. Whenever you read stuff about Jesus, whether it be his, his suffering or his death or his resurrection... You'll oftentimes read that little phrase in accordance to the Scripture. And when you hear Jesus talking about his life, there's a little passage I didn't read. It was actually in in one of the last chapters in the book of uh, Luke. Actually, Luke chapter 24. It says this. Jesus says he's hanging out with a couple other disciples. He says, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then, beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them the Scriptures and the things concerning himself. So what Jesus does is he goes back throughout the entire Bible or the Torah and he begins to unfold for them. He interprets to them the understanding of the fact that everything that was written in the Bible literally, literally is a script I like to use this phrase. It is God's script for his narrative or his play or his program. However you want to look at it. Get the picture in your mind of God not only being the script writer or the author, God's also the set designer. He's also the director. He's also the lead role. Right? Here's what Jesus would say. He says, I am the lead role in the script that my Father and me and the Holy Spirit wrote long ago. We wrote it down in the Torah for you to read so you can follow along. That's what he's doing. He's calling their text. He's like, follow along. Read line 44A. You know, that's what it says. I'm gonna suffer, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna rise again. Everything was a part of God's time. Jesus knew this, and he draws their attention to it time and time again. And what it does is it calls us our attention to realize the Bible can be trusted. I realize we live in a day and age that really does not want to trust the Bible. We want to question it. We live in the age of higher criticism where we can take a look at certain texts and analyze them and scrutinize them and find fault and try to find sort of contradictions. And we kind of are left sort of with this uh, mentality that, you know, maybe the Bible really isn't the Word of God. Maybe it sort of uh, contains the Word of God. But just because it contains the Word of God, because it's tampered and translated and interpreted so many different times by so many different hands, that, you know, maybe we can't really trust it. Really, that argument, I don't have a lot of the time to go into reasons why, it just doesn't hold water. I'll give you one simple example why. The Dead Sea Scrolls, when those came out back in the 40s, what they did is they caused us to realize that the very scrolls that they found in these caves that are a thousand years old are exactly identical to the Bibles that we have. So the whole concept of you can't trust the Bible is just simply not true. It is a convenient means to simply dismiss the authority of the Bible, in the Bible. That's really all it is. So one of the things I want for us to see about the fact that Jesus rising again from the dead this doctrine of the resurrection really gives validity to the fact that we can trust the Bible. That means in your life you can trust the Bible. Now that means you really shouldn't even be trusting me unless I agree with the Bible. Right? So be like, this guy's corny. Just, just long traverse me with the Bible. If I'm wrong, just dismiss it. That's fine. Right? But what I have to say works with the Bible, then that's the Bible. And it's really not in my words anyhow. I'm just kind of repeating what the Bible already says. The point of the matter is, is the Bible has to be the final authority. And we can trust it. We can trust it. That's what the resurrection does. The second thing that we see is this. Is that the resurrection also gives us this understanding that death becomes our victory. Death becomes our victory. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 15, 54 says. Death Is swallowed up in victory. Oh death, where's your victory? Oh death, where's your faith? Paul the Apostle again, he's working through this huge concept of this event. Christ rose again from the dead. You can just see Paul, he's writing this letter, he's kind of asking these questions. Well, if Jesus rose again from the dead, what does that mean for me who's in Christ and death, which one day I'll face? That's kind of what Paul's asking. I think that's what Paul's looking at. And those are the questions that he's wrestling with. The reality is that when we find ourselves in life, we will one day die. I mean, I, I understand we live in the West. And we live in westernized culture. We live in a lot of modern-day technology where we have the abilities to prolong life. We have the abilities to nip this and tuck that and dye that and Botox, lift, and, you know, save unibrows. We I mean, can do a lot of things. Or we can do a lot of things. But everything at the end of the day is just simply a means to avoid example. We will not, We will not, I mean, that's why we take showers, guys. Alright. I mean, bottom line is just we know if we don't take showers. We begin to smell. But that smell, that funk. It's just your body, body. All right? You're just dying early. And we can we can cover it up by using nice fragrances and everything's cool, right? That's it. We, we are dying. Our bodies are passing away. And even though we have modern means to try to prolong that, to sustain that, to keep things going, to really create a better life maybe or a longer life, the reality is that one day, Every single one of us, one out of one, will die. every one of us will eventually have our own date with the grave. It is what it is. But the reality is for all of us that the way the resurrection comes across, the way it works into works into our lives, is it reveals to us this understanding that even though we will die, because Jesus died and rose again from the dead, the way Paul is looking at this, and the way he's analyzing this, the way he's understanding this, he realizes that when Jesus died, when Jesus rose again from the dead, Paul realizes, death did not have the final word over Jesus. It's okay, it's up. Yes! That is really good news. So here's what Paul's doing. He's looking at this and saying, if it doesn't have the final word over Jesus, and if I'm in Jesus, there's going to be final word over going with this? That's so what Paul says. Listen, death, where is your sting? Oh, die, but it's not the end. It's not the final. It doesn't have the final say over me. As Paul goes further, the way he thinks about this is he realizes the reason why there is death in this world is because of sin. See, death was not the way that God originally created everything. God created everything sort of in this rhythm with himself. That was the Garden of Eden. Everything was rhythmic, everything was good, everything was sustained by God, in God through God, and all creation knew it. All creation rejoiced in its creator. Mankind sins. He becomes sort of what's called our head over, he makes a decision for us. You can think out. Yeah. But what happens is Adam sins, but we also continue to make that same choice. Whereby what takes place is rather than following the ways of God, we follow the way of our fallen heart, which is to resist God, which is to turn away from God. And when we move away from God, because God is light, and God is light, the further away we get from God, the further away we move into darkness and death. You understand that? The absence of God is death and darkness. The presence of God is light and life. So Paul's working this out. He realizes that Jesus came and he died for sin. His death on the cross was to destroy, was to cleanse, was to wash away, was to cover, was to remove, was to expiate, was to propitiate or satisfy God. Because of our sin, if that was why Jesus died, then state of death is moved. So even though we might die physically, we will never die spiritually because we are in Christ. That's why Paul could say something like this: For me to die, for me to be absent from this body, flatline, death, game over, ninety-nine. How do you want to call it? You stop breathing. You don't fog mirrors anymore. However you want to look at it, it's over, right? You're expired. However you want to do it, Paul says, my soul to be absent from the body is to be present with God. Eternal life, eternal life. However you view it, we rose again from the, it's your life. It's your the dead. We stand, and I follow in His footsteps away with the Resurrection. So thinking about death. You know, the law of is that we don't have to be afraid of death. A lot of people are. Now, I think there's a distinction between being afraid of death and being afraid of how you die. And to be honest with you, I'm not afraid of death, but being afraid of how to die, there's a few ways I'd rather not go out, but the bottom line is that I know that however I end up dying, I'm going to be present with God. I'm going to be present with the Lord. I will be with Him because I'm in Christ. Because Jesus came, suffered, died, and rose again. And because if I'm in Christ, i see the rise again. Therefore, death really is a victory. It's a release from this body. Okay? The last thing is this. They realize that ultimately one of the most predominant themes throughout the New Testament that is accompanied with the concept of Jesus rising again from the dead is this great picture. That Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. That's how they do it. It's like Jesus is Lord. In other words, Jesus, and here's another got a picture, okay? When you got a guy that predicts his death, when you got a guy that predicts his death, it's not something super spectacular. I mean, I can say, I'm going to die. That would the to pass. It'll be true. But the moment you have somebody that predicts their death with specifics, now you're kind of narrowing the gap. When you have a guy that predicts his death with lots of specifics, and not only that, but also says that the very specifics of his death are actually found written in the very holy book in which his entire culture is built upon, now you've got a lot of things you've got to keep your eyes open for. If you got a guy who predicts his death and also predicts his resurrection, who ends up dying exactly the way that he predicted, exactly the way that it was spelled out in the very holy book that your entire culture reads, and rises again the third day, now you got somebody that you have to reckon with. you got somebody that you have to stand back and ask the question, Now just Who is this God? And that's where the answer from the New Testament writers would come back with the resounding, Jesus is Lord. That's all right. I know it's really late in the morning. Um, The point that I want to make is this. In the New Testament, when you have the writers and they would say, Jesus is Lord. This is sort of has a double meaning. Because when you say Jesus is Lord, you're also admitting in the culture, which is all Roman, that Caesar is. We live by a new set of rules is what the implication is. That because Jesus is Lord, we live by a rule that comes from God. That Jesus himself is Lord. But here's the most beautiful part, because the majority of people, obviously, in the first section, all of them in the Bible had written about this. They actually believe this. They lived this. And they love the fact that Jesus was Lord. They love God. But the reality, what like, sort of stems out of this, that the New Testament writers want to try to convey, is that as Lord, meaning he owns and rules and is the sovereign over everything, over the entire planet, over every despot, over every ruler, leader, magistrate, king, business owner, business owner, stockholder, bank owner, whoever it is, Jesus is Lord over all. And the implication is that He will one day return and require an account. But here's the beautiful message. This is what is announced in the Bible as the gospel. Because Jesus came, suffered, was rejected, died for our sin, rose again from the dead, demonstrating, proving everything that he claimed, becomes color. And the willingness to forgive all who Paul went on proclaiming that Jesus is Lord, and that you can be made right with this God. He loves you. He loves you. You don't have to remain in your sin. You don't have to stay in rebellion. You don't have to keep fighting against Him and resisting Him and pushing Him away. That today you can make things right because He is a God who is so rich in mercy and full of grace. Here's the way Paul the Apostle would put it in Ephesians. I'll read this to you. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. And he says, In which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, tearing out the desires of our body and of our mind, and we were by nature... Children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. Paul writing to a bunch of Christians that are trying to live out and understand what is the implication of the resurrection to me personally. And Paul's saying, here's the way it's lived down for you. Jesus is Lord. And he he's come very He's come to forgive. He's come offering he forgiveness to you who have received it. You know that there's a time that we are living in right now that God has stretched out his armor to you to offer forgiveness. You see, the bottom line is that we are sinful. You say you shouldn't talk about sin. Right? That makes people offended. The bottom line is, is that we are an offense, okay? If we are offended, that's okay, because we are an offense to God. We have sinned against God. We've sinned against God by not only committing things against God and against other people that we shouldn't have done. We've sinned against God by omitting things that we should be doing, by not being thankful to God. Sin is not just simply messing with other people and causing relationships to crumble and be destroyed. It's not just simply me defiling other people or being defiled by other people, but it's also really me not honoring God with all my heart, mind, soul, strength, and might as I ought. That's why the Bible says, all we are like children of before God. But here's the most beautiful verse, this little sentence here, verse 4, it says, but enough and there's one of my favorite pastors, a guy by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones, he had this whole message just on the word but. Just the word but, but God. Whole message, like an hour-long message of how God takes people that are in sin. And He uses His praise just to transition everything around to say this is who you once were, this is how you live, this is how God had viewed you. But you don't need to have this incomplete perspective about God that He is always eternally. I yell, you might think, is the pastor angry? I'm really not angry. I just talk well. The bottom line is, is that I don't want that to cause you to think that God's angry. He's not. He loves you. But there is a sense where he is angry against our sin. He's, against, he's angry against those who sin. So yes, we have offended him, but the message of the Bible is God's mercy triumphs over judgment. That's what the cross teaches us. That's what the resurrection of Christ demonstrates that He is indeed Lord. He's come bearing pardon. He's come to offer forgiveness. And He finishes with this little section here. He says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He's loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised up with him and seated with us in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You know what Paul's saying? It's what concept of heavenly places in Christ? Paul's saying because Jesus rose from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God, which is a, a metaphor for His Lord. Because that's where Jesus is today. Those who trust in him. Those who seek Him, those that respond to His offer of forgiveness and pardon, will also be raised as if from the dead to be seated with Jesus, the Lord. The Bible goes on to even describe that in God's presence is fullness of joy. We're talking about a God that is not out to destroy your life. We're talking about a God that wants to satisfy your life. To give you life. That's the God that we're talking about. That's what Jesus' death, suffering, rejection, and ultimately resurrection speaks to us about. That's the gospel. That's the message we proclaim that you don't have to still be living in the oppression of your sin and rebellion and rejection against God, but that God graciously lovingly, carefully stepped into our world, experienced our oppression, felt our pain, paid our penalty, rose again from the dead, and has offered us life. That's the gospel. That's Jesus. That's why we love Jesus with all of our heart. That's why we celebrate Him. That's why I get the great joy to bring Jesus to you today. We're going to pray. We're going to finish. We're going to respond right now by singing songs of praise to Jesus because we love him. We're going to respond by giving our tithes and our offerings. If you're one of our guests, please don't feel any obligation to give. If you want to, that's between you and God. But don't give out of any other impulse other than joy. We're going to also pray. If there's anybody here, you just need someone to talk to or pray with. There's a little area in back if you'd like. You can go back there. There'll be some people back there that maybe would be able to be there to pray for you and love to hang out with you. I'm going to pray right now. Chris will lead us in some songs of worship. And really what this, is, this time is about, it's about responding to God. I really have a firm belief that true worship happens when we respond to God's work. In other words, we understand something about God. We have an intelligent type of comprehension about who God is as he speaks to us through his word. And then we respond to that understanding by affection and a heart. Love for God. That's why we love Jesus. That's why we sing songs to him. I'm going to pray. We'll worship. We'll give joyfully. I'll pray to wrap things up in the end and we'll have an amazing meal as we celebrate the fact that Jesus is alive and he's King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And hopefully you're a king Just pray. Okay. Jesus, we thank you for the cross. Thank you for covering, taking care of, removing, cleansing of sin. Thank you for the resurrection. That proves so many things to us, but really one of the most amazing things is that you are a king and that you're a gracious king who's come and save. Seek and save this world of us. Thank you, God, that you are here even now, and you're willing and desirous to save sheep that recognize and understand and accept and own up to their own defense. I pray that they would just respond investing are sins, into you even now. asking you for their forgiveness, for your forgiveness. One well, day you would give yeah, your forgiveness to your very good God.